The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. We begin tonight with some breaking news. The New York Times has just published a major new report about Israeli intelligence failures in the lead-up to Hamas's October 7th attack. According to this new reporting, not yet verified by NBC News, Israeli intelligence officials obtained Hamas's detailed battle plan for the October 7th attack more than a year before the attack took place. Quoting from The New York Times, Israeli officials obtained Hamas's battle plan for the October 7th terrorist attack more than a year before it happened, documents, emails and interviews show. But Israeli military and intelligence officials dismissed the plan as aspirational, considering it too difficult for Hamas to carry out. The approximately 40 page document, which the Israeli authorities codenamed Jericho Wall, outlined point by point exactly the kind of devastating invasion that led to the deaths of about 1,200 people. Hamas followed the blueprint with shocking precision. The document called for a barrage of rockets at the outside of the attack. It called for drones to knock out the security cameras and automated machine guns along the border. And it called for gunmen to pour into Israel en masse in paragliders, on motorcycles and on foot all of which happened on October 7th. Officials privately concede that had the military taken these warnings seriously, Israel could have blunted the attacks or possibly even prevented them. What could have been an intelligence coup turned into one of the worst miscalculations in Israel's 75-year history. Joining us now is former CIA director under President Obama, John Brennan. He is now an MSNBC senior national security and intelligence analyst. Director Brennan, thank you for being here. And let me just first get your reaction to this bombshell reporting from The New York Times. Well, Alex, I was utterly shocked when I read through that New York Times report. Um, The fact that the Israelis were able to collect more than a year in advance the actual battle plan that Hamas used, but then failed to be able to realized that this was, in fact, what they were going to do. It shows that they made faulty assumptions, and that's one of the real problems with any type of policy or intelligence failure when you make those assumptions. And here it was underestimating the capabilities of their adversary. And that usually happens when they're looking at sort of a paramilitary adversary. It's sort of unconventional, irregular forces. But this document, this Jericho Wall document that they got, it should have been the prism through which they looked at every Hamas action over the past year to see whether or not the the Hamas fighters were actually working on it and making progress against it. They deemed that it was too aspirational for Hamas to uh, carry out. But this, they had more than a year to be able to judge and evaluate whether or not Hamas was moving down that uh, progression. Uh, and obviously, this is something that that uh, is going to require in, in very uh, extensive review in terms of what the failure was. But it also raises serious questions about how intelligence might be uh, not used appropriately or not or is, is not uh, the system is not working the way it should. If this document didn't make it through to be actually the, the uh, an, op- an opportunity for Israel to stop and prevent those horrific attacks. Yeah. When you say this document should have been the prism through which all Hamas exercises, for example, were seen, 
There's a detail in the piece that says in July, just three months before the attacks, a veteran analyst with Unit 8200, which is Israel's Signals Intelligence Agency, warned that Hamas had conducted an intense day-long training exercise that appeared similar to what was outlined in the blueprint. And the same analyst goes on to say, it is a plan designed to start a war, she added. It's not just a raid on a village. First of all, the idea that they effectively saw a dry run for this. How unusual is that? And in terms of an analyst ringing an alarm bell so clearly, is that unusual? Well, that analyst did exactly what she was supposed to do, which was to look at what Hamas was doing and to see whether or not there's any correlation with previous intelligence that the Israelis collected. And she seemed to be pushing it, but somebody up the chain of command or somebody is up the chain of command still determined that Hamas was una- would be unable to carry out such a, a broad, extensive plan. Uh, but this is where uh, you really need to have those analysts continue to push it up the chain of command. And this is what they're going to have to look at in any type of commission review. How did the system break down so profoundly that they weren't able to exploit the opportunity that was given to them by actually collecting this document more than a year ago. Uh, To that end, it sounds like there was one colonel in charge of the Gaza unit in particular who sort of stood in the way of her warnings, potentially uh, ascending up the food chain, if you will. A colonel in the Gaza division brushed off the analyst's concerns, according to encrypted emails that were viewed by The Times. I utterly refute that this scenario is imaginary, the analyst wrote in email exchanges. The colonel in the Gaza division applauded the analysis, but said the exercise was part of a totally imaginative scenario, not an indication of Hamas's ability to pull it off. In short, let's wait patiently, the colonel wrote. Director Brennan, in short, let's wait patiently. That is the stuff that lives on in infamy after October 7th. Um, I know we're talking about a different intelligence service over here in Israel, but as far as that chain of command, as far as the ways an analyst would have around a colonel like this who seems dead set on not taking this anywhere, I mean, does that opportunity exist? How many people do you imagine saw this report? There should have been a lot, and there should be no single point of failure. No single person should be able to stop something like this from being further reviewed and looked at. If this document, there seems to be no question, according to reporting, that this was a legitimate Hamas document in the eyes of Israeli intelligence. They just didn't believe they were able to carry this out. But something like this should have been shared broadly. I wonder, you know, something like this should have been shared broadly across Israeli defense intelligence, uh, Shin Bet, uh, Mossad and and others. And even uh, to the extent that, you know, the United States is such a close intelligence relationship with the Israelis. This is something that I think they really would want to have fresh eyes look at and to also see whether or not U.S. intelligence or other intelligence might have picked up some indicators, indications that, in fact, Hamas was able to start to operationalize this plan. But if it was kept within a small group of people or if one individual was able to stop this from actually being reviewed and considered to be a real legitimate plan that Hamas would be able to carry out, there is a strong strong need for there to be an immediate review of what's going on inside of Israeli intelligence and how this information gets to policymakers to make sure that it can be acted upon, operationalized, and to mitigate any potential future threats. Former CIA Director John Brennan, thank you so much for your time and your perspective on all this. We really appreciate it. I want to bring into the conversation Ben Rhodes, who served as Deputy National Security Advisor in the Obama administration. Ben, thanks for joining me tonight. Um, I am 
shocked by the reporting. I also am shocked given the public statements we've gotten from the Israeli government um, thus far. The Times of Israel, um, Benjamin Netanyahu, I believe this is October 28th, there is a tweet that is subsequently pulled down, but that he tweets saying, contrary to the false claims under no circumstances and at no stage was Prime Minister Netanyahu warned of Hamas's war intentions. Um, perhaps this never made it to his desk, but it, that in and of itself, if you listen to Director Brennan, seems to be like a massive security failure. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, first of all, he's the responsible official. He's the prime minister of the country. Um, and his whole political identity has been tied to the fact that he was the person that uh, assured Israel's security. So either you had a situation in which there were warnings that were ignored that may have reached him or people in his cabinet, or this system was so dysfunctional that information wasn't being shared and that the focus from, you know, because the other issue here, Alex, is sometimes there's a demand from policymakers. You know, what do we have uh, from uh, in terms of Hamas's intentions? What we saw in the run up to October 7th is a number of things. Number one, we saw mass political dysfunction in Israel as Prime Minister Nenio was trying to ram through these judicial changes. You had mass protests in the streets and you had public warnings, public warnings from some of the security officials that that dysfunction was putting Israel in danger. Then you had the IDF units that guarded that border up in the West Bank, in part because they were protecting Israeli settlers who were in clashes with Palestinians. So you, you had a lot of dysfunction. And what we learned in this really astonishing reporting is that, at a minimum, that dysfunction was in the Israeli intelligence community and was preventing what was a document that was unprecedented in its like specificity about the nature of the attack and was there for a year. I mean, this is not something that was only a couple of days before the attacks was sitting in the system for a year and nobody was acting upon it. Nobody was seemingly accountable for needing to act upon it. Um, given the potential indictment here, I, I wonder if you were surprised that we even know about this, given how fraught it is for this prime minister at a time when the political landscape is complicated for him. Well, Alex, I think what happens, I've been in government when there have been intelligence failures. Uh, I've worked uh, for the vice chair of the 9-11 Commission throughout that effort. Um, inevitably, what happens is when there are officials who knew that they were doing their jobs, and then they start to hear politicians say, nobody had any idea this was going to happen, or we couldn't have done anything to stop it, that information tends to find its way out because there are people that are frustrated and there are people who want there to be accountability and people who want the system to work better. People with not just motivations for themselves, but motivations to say, hey, look, actually, we need to fix some things here. Uh, and usually the impulse of politicians, and it's certainly been the impulse of Prime Minister Netanyahu since October 7th, is to say, when, when the war is over, when enough time has gone by, then we'll take a look back. And I think part of the reason the information is coming out is that there are people in that system who are like, no, we need to understand what happened, how this happened, why this happened, in part to have people be held accountable, but in part because we have to fix this. Uh, this is an ongoing military operation against Hamas that is entirely dependent on intelligence. Who are Hamas's leaders? What are their intentions? Where are they? What are their military capabilities? What are their contacts with uh, external actors? Uh, all of that information is absolutely indispensable to everything Israel is doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So unless these deficiencies are fixed, uh, I, I think obviously Israel is not going to be as secure as it needs to be. Well, yeah, I mean, you bring that up as this pause, whatever we're calling it, uh, the 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 semi-ceasefire is set to expire. And I wonder how you think this informs that, given 
you know, renewed military incursions are going to depend on intelligence, which, as we are reading the page of The New York Times, has failed Israel profoundly. Yeah, and it's a very complicated picture, right? Because on the one hand, they actually are collecting good intelligence. Um, they had the intelligence plan, the whole blueprint of this attack. What wasn't happening is it wasn't being shared appropriately. It wasn't being acted upon. It wasn't the focus of the political leadership of the country. It wasn't uh, perhaps the focus of even the leadership of the security services when it should have been. Um, and you're right, there's a pause. And during that pause, one of the things that we know the Biden administration is counseling the Israeli government is what you were doing before, this kind of full-scale destruction of the Gaza Strip that has killed over 15,000 people, inflamed opinion around the world, could be contributing to the radicalization of another generation of people uh, in Gaza. That approach is not going to be sustainable from a humanitarian perspective and from a political and diplomatic perspective. So therefore, any recalibration of Israel's military operation is going to depend on a more targeted approach, one that identifies what the prioritization is in terms of Hamas's leadership, its military capabilities, that is very much an intelligence-driven kind of effort here. And so uh, I think it speaks to the need to take a minute here and try to figure out uh, how to make sure that that's working as well as it should. I should also add, Alex, in case people are saying, well, Israel can't go back to October 6th, they wouldn't be going back to October 6th with a longer ceasefire. They are on that border now. The IDF is there. It is fortified. October 7th is impossible in the current dynamic. So I think it is entirely appropriate and possible for Israel to say, you know, we are going to basically be making decisions about the recalibration of this military operation. And we're also going to be looking hard at how could we have had such a catastrophic failure? And are there system changes that we need to be making now in stride to fix it? And lastly, Alex, this question of the prime minister of Israel, because Bibi Netanyahu's standing was low before this bombshell dropped. He's never had lower approval ratings. He, he I think the Conventional wisdom is uh, he'll be replaced uh, at some point. Probably uh, he wants it to be at the conclusion of this military operation. I think those questions are going to kick up again. Does Israel need some alternative political leadership? So all of this is going to, uh, I think, be roiling Israeli politics uh, in the days to come. Um, and and there are a lot of important decisions that need to be made. And and just to sound a human note, there are the families of those hostages who are still in Gaza, who are still being held captive, having to read the story thinking somewhere maybe it could have all been prevented. Just devastating. Uh, ben Rhodes, thank you so much for your time tonight. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. Much more ahead this evening, including exactly what made Senator Lindsey Graham so very, very angry at a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing meeting today. I think this is a bunch of garbage and crap, to be honest with you. The first new text messages between Congressman Scott Perry and Trump Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark shed new light on the Republican effort in Congress to overturn the 2020 election. That is next. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. 
Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. So the gag order is back in effect. Today, a New York appeals court reinstated the gag order on former President Donald Trump in his civil fraud trial. That gag order bars Trump from making any statements about court staff after his repeated social media posts attacking the judge's clerk in that case. After being prohibited from attacking the judge's staff today, Trump instead attacked the judge's wife. So necessity is the mother of invention, I guess. Meanwhile, we could learn any day now whether another separate gag order on Trump will be upheld in federal court. A D.C. appeals court is set to rule on Trump's challenge to the gag order imposed on him by the judge in the January 6th criminal case brought by special counsel Jack Smith. But while we are waiting for that ruling, we did get something unexpected from that particular appeals court. And it concerns this guy. This is Republican Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, whom you may know from his many, many cameos in Congress's January 6th investigation. In fact, Scott Perry turned out to be so entangled in Donald Trump's attempts to stay in office after losing the 2020 election, the January 6th committee took the unprecedented step of subpoenaing him, a fellow member of Congress, a subpoena that Congressman Perry promptly blew off. Last year, the FBI seized Scott Perry's phone as part of the federal criminal investigation of January 6th. And since then, special counsel Jack Smith and Scott Perry have been in a legal battle over exactly what communications federal prosecutors are allowed to access on Mr. Perry's phone. Well, now, in what appears to have been a clerical error, the appeals court briefly posted online a document that describes and quotes from a whole bunch of those communications from Perry's phone. And oh boy, they sure would seem to confirm that Congressman Scott Perry was right in the middle of Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election. To quote Politico's headline, court filing reveals Representative Scott Perry's vast web of contacts in bid to reverse 2020 election. For instance, there are the texts Perry exchanged with Jeffrey Clark, the obscure Trump Justice Department official who Perry had introduced to Trump as someone could, who could help with the effort to overturn the election. Trump found Mr. Clark so helpful, in fact, that in late December 2020, Trump made it known he was planning to install Jeffrey Clark as acting attorney general so Trump could use the Justice Department to push his stolen election claims. In these newly revealed communications, we learned that Scott Perry texted Jeffrey Clark late on December 30th to tell Clark that President Trump seemed happy with him suggesting the plan to elevate Clark to the top of the DOJ was moving forward. Clark replied, quote, I'm praying. This makes me quite nervous and wonder if I'm worthy or ready. To which Perry responded, you are the man. I have confirmed it. God does what he does for a reason. In addition to telling Clark that he had been chosen by God to take over the Justice Department for Donald Trump, Perry also told Clark that Trump would give Clark a presidential security clearance to access intelligence about the election. And Congressman Perry was busy strategizing with lots of people to try and keep Donald Trump in power. He was texting with top Trump administration and campaign officials, as well as legislators in his home state of Pennsylvania, about various ways Joe Biden's victory might be overturned in that state in Pennsylvania and beyond. This is all on top of what we heard in testimony from former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, who said that 
Congressman Scott Perry was central to conversations about Trump potentially leading rally goers to the Capitol on January 6th. And that after January 6th, Mr. Perry asked Trump for a preemptive presidential pardon, something Congressman Perry denies. But Scott Perry is far from the only member of Congress who is deeply involved in all of this. Remember that Trump's own Justice Department leaders testified that Trump told them, quote, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Those included people like Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, who was a key player in White House strategy sessions about keeping Trump in power, and the current House Speaker, Mike Johnson, whose specious legal arguments for overturning the election gave cover to his 146 Republican colleagues who voted against certifying Joe Biden's win. And now, the guy who almost got to be Trump's attorney general, Jeffrey Clark, he is among those criminally charged in Georgia, and he is named as one of the six unindicted co-conspirators in the federal criminal case against Donald Trump. Though, as it turns out, Trump had a lot of other co-conspirators in the United States Congress. Joining me now is Devlin Barrett, national security and law enforcement reporter for The Washington Post. Devlin, thanks so much for being here. Um, Scott Perry, very much the sort of where's Waldo in the in the scene uh, inside the Capitol and outside the Capitol unfolding in and around January 6th. Um, Can you talk about the role he played in choosing Jeffrey Clark and helping to elevate him to be a potential AG? Right. So one of the ways in which the, the, the time period we're talking about was so strange, which it was people were really confused. People within the Justice Department were really confused. How did Jeff Clark come to the president's attention? Jeff Clark was essentially an environmental lawyer. Uh, and it, did, it wasn't clear even to people who were running the department why Jeff Clark was, was suddenly a, a person of such interest to President Trump. And now we understand much better from this uh perhaps accidentally unsealed filing, why that is, because Perry was apparently acting as a go-between between the president and Clark. And so that sort of fills in a big blank and a big sort of question mark as to how all this came to be. And, and really what you see is you see Perry helping sort of navigate this weird budding relationship between Clark and President Trump. I I was surprised to see trepidation on the part of Jeffrey Clark, a man who was so very much going against the grain of what basically every other legal mind thought as far as uh, Trump's ability to overturn the results of the election. Can you tell me anything more about the sort of coaching role that Scott Perry played in trying to reassure Jeffrey Clark that God was on his side and the, the doubts that existed in Jeff Clark's mind as he sought to run the Justice Department? Right. Well, we really don't have a great sense of why these two were so um, immediately uh, open with each other on this level, because Clark is expressing doubts about his own ability to pursue this. And Perry is saying, no, you are essentially, um, you know, the perfect person to do this. But I do think that the, the, the back and forth shows a number of things, one is which one of which I think is a really like odd quirk of this whole thing is is the discussion of tickets and tickets in this context is a they have a they have a discussion about Clark wants a ticket and Perry says he will try to get him one and that is a discussion about security clearances and what they're really talking about is the desire to get access to classified information that they think will help make their argument that this election was stolen. Now we know through a, a whole range of people who 
or in the intelligence community at that time, that there was no meaningful intelligence that would help Trump's argument here. But I think it's really interesting that Perry and Clark were both so focused at that time on getting classified intelligence that they thought would make their argument, in part because clearly there was no public information that would help them make this case. Right. And, and it really shows the degree to which they were, you know, desperate. They were looking for anything that might help them make an argument that didn't make sense. It, it just becomes clear in your reporting that Scott Perry is playing a very strange role here as as someone that's trying to help install this sort of random justice official and coach him through the process to be the attorney general. He's someone that has conversations with Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows. After those conversations, Meadows, according to Cat City Hutchinson, starts burning documents in the fireplace. I think I'm getting that right. Um, and then Perry asks reportedly for a preemptive pardon from Donald Trump. I mean, he is sort of a Zelig-like figure here, finding himself, I mean, I, I sh I'm using that in the passive sense, putting himself in these situations of apparently key import. I wonder why you think he has thus far evaded uh, his own criminal indictment. Well, it's a really interesting question because, again, remember, as you pointed out, Clark has been indicted in Georgia. Clark is an unindicted co-conspirator in their federal case uh, in Washington. Yet from these texts, we see that Perry is a really important go-between between Clark and President Trump. So it's a fair question to ask, why hasn't he faced more of a sort of public accounting from prosecutors? But I will say, like, the whole reason we're seeing these texts and the whole reason this legal issue exists is because it's very clear that that the, the special counsel has been looking very closely at Perry. And there has been a whole legal argument around the legal protection surrounding members of Congress that protects Perry a little bit more than other people. And that may explain some of why he has not been named in the way you're talking about. But I also think you can't assume he's out of the woods because right. as these texts show, he's right in the middle of some of the most concerning conversations to prosecutors. Yeah, I, I got to say, in that vein, he's not the only one that's so, so far skated away from a federal indictment or is skating parallel, perhaps, to a federal criminal indictment. Mike Johnson is also someone, the current Speaker of the House, who Mark Elias says in his bid to get 147 Republicans to sign on to this amicus brief, other than former President Donald Trump, Mike Johnson is arguably the most culpable federal elected official in what transpired on January 6, 2021. Now, I know it's tricky with members of Congress, and I assume even more so with speakers of the House, but I wonder if you think that he is absol potentially absolved out of the woods, to use your expression, um, on, on further federal investigation, given the sort of central role he played in ginning up enthusiasm and legitimate support for the big lie. I mean, look, I think it's hard to predict exactly what prosecutors plan to do with the broader conspiracy. Like one of the things that I think is very tricky about the case Jack Smith is charged against President Trump is he is essentially charged with conspiracy, but he's charged alone. But the premise of charging someone with conspiracy is that you, cons you can't conspire with yourself. You conspired with others. Smith has named, well, he's identified essentially a handful of other people who were part of that conspiracy. But that doesn't mean that's where the conspiracy ends. And I think there is a world in which this can keep going. But it's pretty clear that the special counsel is trying to finish a case 
against Trump before it starts a case against anyone else. That is true. Whether whether he can is another issue entirely. Devlin Barrett, Washington Post. Great to have you, Devlin. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Still ahead this evening, Senate Democrats want to hear more from wealthy conservatives who have reportedly been bankrolling luxury trips for conservative Supreme Court justices. Which Republicans on the committee tried to stand in their way? That is next. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Today, Democrats in the Senate Judiciary Committee voted on something that made Senator Lindsey Graham, the top Republican on the committee, furious. Let's just be real blunt and direct. This is uh, garbage. We think it's a really bad idea. This jihad y'all have been on, I think this is a bunch of garbage and crap, to be honest with you. So, yeah, this is really bad, Senator Kennedy. This is a political effort by the radical left to destroy this court. This committee is taking the country down a very dark and dangerous road. And it wasn't just Senator Graham who thought what Democrats voted on today was something like a jihad by the radical left. Because when it came time to vote on this dark and nefarious thing, every Republican on the committee disappeared. They stormed out refusing to vote. So what was it that Republicans were so passionately opposed to today? Issuing two subpoenas. Now remember, when Republicans controlled this committee and Lindsey Graham was its chairman, they had no problem issuing more than 50 subpoenas to people involved in the Mueller investigation of Donald Trump and the 2016 election. But today's two subpoenas, those crossed a line. Because today... Democrats on the committee subpoenaed conservative activist Leonard Leo and Republican billionaire mega donor Harlan Crow. You might recognize Harlan Crow as the billionaire who, according to reporting from ProPublica, has taken Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas on undisclosed private jet flights and luxury vacations for two decades. Or as the guy who bought a house for, from Justice Thomas, but for some reason let Thomas's mother continue to live there for free. Or as the man who paid for the private school tuition of a relative Thomas said he was raising as a son. And you might remember Leonard Leo because of all the great ProPublica reporting about him acting as a power broker of sorts, 
setting up those luxury excursions for Supreme Court justices with rich Republicans. But Democrats wanting to know more about all of that was a bridge too far for Lindsey Graham and his Republican colleagues. Coming up, as two Arizona officials are indicted for delaying the certification of the 2022 midterm election results, one local radio station is trying to combat disinformation in the Grand Canyon state. That is next. This week, two local officials in Cochise County, Arizona, were indicted by a grand jury for their efforts to withhold certification of the 2022 midterm election results in their county. The election deniers were charged with two felonies for allegedly conspiring to delay the certification of election results and interfering with the Secretary of State's statewide canvas. Their indictment comes as efforts are being made in Arizona, a state with a long history of disinformation, as efforts are being made to counter disinformation ahead of Election Day 2024. One radio station in Phoenix is doing its part to fight that disinformation, particularly among Latino voters who make up nearly a quarter of the electorate in the state of Arizona. MSNBC's Paula Ramos has this report. Radio Campesina is about to record their morning show called Punto de Vista. Today's theme is mis- and disinformation, and they'll be dispelling a lot of the themes and narratives that Latino voters are exposed to here. El día de hoy vamos a platicar acerca de lo que es la desinformación y cómo combatirla. Que nuestra comunidad necesita eh, información correcta. With the swing state of Arizona up for grabs in the 2024 election, Radio Campesina, a Spanish-language radio network, has emerged as a purveyor of truth amid a landscape filled with misinformation. Mira, nos mandan esta pregunta. Normalmente la gente tenemos dudas para votar por correo porque dicen que se van a perder las boletas. Ahí está la desinformación. Me encanta esa pregunta. Me encanta esa pregunta porque les, les menciono, se puede rastrear su boleta. The radio station is also an effective mobilizer for a community whose relationship with politics has been strained by the past. Nos está sintonizando. Usted está ahorita en la construcción, está en un está de campesino, tal vez está en un restaurante y usted da cuenta. The station has been a consistent and trusted messenger for decades, ever since it was founded by labor activist Cesar Chavez in 1983. It was meant to serve as a voice for the Spanish-speaking community, including in Arizona. This state has been home to some of the country's most anti-immigrant policies, from racial profiling by Sheriff Jarapayo to the Show Me Your Papers law in 2010 to Senate candidate Carrie Lake, who says an invasion is happening at the southern border. Joe Biden is different. The Biden campaign has already launched Spanish-language radio ads on Radio Campesina and other Spanish-language stations in Arizona and Nevada, marking what it says is the earliest ever investment by Democrats in Black and Latino radio for a re-election campaign. So far, the Trump campaign has focused more on the early primary states. They didn't respond to our questions about their plans for Arizona. Misinformation and disillusionment can feed off the deeply rooted mistrust many Latinos feel. 
And that's why Radio Campesina has taken to connecting with its audience in a unique and traditional way. It's Saturday night in Phoenix, Arizona, and we're at this rodeo community event that's being hosted by Radio Campesina. But this is so much more than just fun and games. There's a political strategy. This is Radio Campesina's way of building trust with the community. Radio Campesina knows the way into their community, and it's through outreach events like this. Here are people that are trying to have fun. They're here for the rodeo, to drink, to be with their families, and yet you all on stage were talking about politics and disinformation. Was that strategic? Yes, because uh, yes, we are here to celebrate, uh, enjoy a, a day, but this is the way you do it, by registering to get out to vote and understanding that you cannot allow any misinformation uh, stop you to, to vote. But we were curious, just how deep does that misinformation and mistrust go? Muchas personas que están hablando sobre fraude electoral, cuestionando las elecciones del 2020. ¿Usted ha escuchado esas cosas? Pues que le dan favoritismo a, a los racistas, que no cuentan el voto hispano. Mm. Y pues, quién sabe, ¿verdad? El presidente Trump dice muchas veces que las elecciones, que él ganó las elecciones. ¿Usted se cree eso? Pues puede que sí, porque la verdad mucha gente sí lo quiere. So you still believe that Trump may have won the election? There's a lot of mistrust in the community. I mean, we've been talking to people. There's a lot of different information that they're hearing. Can they trust Radio Campesina? They trust the brand. We have been there next to them at the front line. They need us more than ever. With millions of dollars spent courting Latino voters, with countless digital initiatives set up to counter the big lie and drive voter turnout, the answer may lie in the trusted messenger and the voice that has always had the ear of the community. Paula Ramos joins me right here to talk about all of that coming up next. Two weeks ago, this show reported on a controversy surrounding America's most influential Spanish-language network, Univision, and its recent choice to embrace Donald Trump despite the former president's previous attacks on the network and its award-winning journalists. But Univision's decision to curry favor with Trump is not happening inside a vacuum. The Wall Street Journal reported recently that Meta, the parent company of Facebook, Threads, and Instagram, will now allow ads that falsely claim that past elections were stolen. Joining me now is Paula Ramos, MSNBC contributor and the person who brought us that very compelling field piece on the fight against misinformation in Arizona. Paula, it's great to see you. Thank you, Alex. Um, I think this is such an essential reporting to understand the spread of disinformation and also the efforts to combat it. So I wonder if you can sort of explain to folks who don't know the broader Spanish language media environment and where Radio Campesina fits into all of that. So you started with Univision, yeah. right? And I think it's, it's very easy to overlook and diminish a small radio station like Radio Campesina within this massive cable news network and environment. But Radio Campesina has a lot of power, right? Still, if you want to win the Latino vote, radio is the key to do it. Why? Because over 90% of Latino adults tune into radio every month. Over 50% wow. of Latinos still believe that radio is the way to sort of remain grounded in their community. Huh. And I think radio has something that TV doesn't have, which is this like nostalgic format. Mm -hmm. Now you can fuse the music with these voices that sound very familiar. And that's the beauty of Radio Campesina, yeah. because they've been this constant and steady voice 
in the community for years, right? They, they have been in the voice and in the background of, of people's homes while Gerard Pio was doing his thing. Yeah. During SB 1070. Yep. Um, during President Obama's deportations. Yep. During Trump's ICE raids. During President Biden's very sort of conflicting immigration agenda. Mm-hmm. In the midst of all that uncertainty, Radio Capesina was there. And so when you're looking at this very rapidly changing media landscape, when you're looking at a Latino audience that may be signaling to us that they're changing, mm-hmm. Radio Campesina is still emerging as this trusted voice. Right? And, and a critical voice in pushing exactly. back against disinformation. Right? This isn't just naked politics. It's That's actually right. the truth versus lies. And I wonder if you can contextualize that in terms of unificion or as I, Gringo mm-hmm. called it, a Univision. Yeah. Uh, the, You're not the, a Gringo. <laughs> I'm actually not. Um, but, but you know what I'm saying. Um, you know, misinformation, disinformation is a real problem. It's not just currying favor with Trump. It's actually putting out bad information there that has a depressing effect on political action, voter registration, a number of things that are critical to the survival of our democracy. I say this all the time. Like, if, if we know that mis- and disinformation is very bad in English— it's way worse in Spanish, right? It just is just we're exposed to it in, in 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 higher rates, and also because the monitoring and the mechanisms behind it aren't there in Spanish the way that they are in English. But I think the, what we try to tell in the story is this idea that you know mis and disinformation among Latinas doesn't happen in a vacuum, yeah. right? The big lie doesn't happen in a vacuum. The big lie sort of feeds off this really deeply rooted mistrust that a lot of Latinos are carrying with them. It feeds off this generational trauma that Latinos have been faced with for years. Right. Right? The way that the trauma has saw Jar Arpaio and the racial profiling, sure. the way that the trauma has seen politicians on both sides of the aisle make a lot of promises that don't ever happen. The yep. way that that trauma has seen Joe Biden in 2020 pledge that he wouldn't build the wall. And certainly now the wall is going up. And so that trauma and that dis and misinformation can create the current environment that we're in where there's apathy. Mm-hmm. And that's what we found in Arizona, where there's uncertainty, where there's disenchantment. And so I think that is the biggest question and challenge that Joe Biden is up against, which is how do you sustain yeah. that hope that he was able to sort of garner among Arizona Latinos in 2020, yes. becoming the first Democratic president to win that state since yeah. 1996? How do you sustain that credibility? Well, yeah. And that's I mean, can I I have to ask you, because we're talking about credibility and we're talking about Joe Biden and the challenges he faces. I have to ask you about Univision, where your father is legendary journalist, Jorge Ramos. He came out with a statement. I think this was yesterday. Mm -hmm. Speaking of his broadly, but I think pointedly uh, to Univision, actually, Mm -hmm. we cannot normalize behavior that threatens democracy and the Hispanic community or offer Trump an open microphone to broadcast his falsehoods and conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Have you, can you offer us any insight into what this is like for a truth seeker and truth teller like Jorge Ramos in a moment of seismic change at a, a network he helped build? I mean, I think my, my father has always told me since day one, um, the, the biggest role we have as journalists is to question power and authority. Mm-hmm. You know, in the face of someone like Trump, you question him. And I think what Univision is doing and what Radio Campesina is doing, I think that shows you the sort of moral question that a lot of these media stations are wrestling with, which is, do you 
cave into Trumpism? And do you give them a platform because you believe that that's what Latinos want? Or, or and access to power. And, I mean, it's all, that's and, very and that's what it's attractive. About. And I think that's what Univision is doing. They're betting on this idea that Trump will win. With that comes power and access. And they're also betting, and I think that's the interesting question, they're betting on a Latino audience that may be changing, that may be telling us that, you know what, we may need a more conservative point of view. And it may fail or not. But what it certainly does fail is journalism. Yes. The fourth estate and truth writ large. Yeah. Let me ask you in terms of how, for example, Democrats, Joe Biden, people interested in the truth combat this. Right. It seems to me that authenticity being sort of native to the environment, which mm-hmm. is like Radio Campesina right. has been there for a long time. It seems like the interlocutors here have to be already known entities. To these You're right. You, you need to find the trusted voice. And I'll give you a very quick example. It was so crystal clear to me during COVID-19 because I, I remember I asked a Latina voter a question. Um, this was a, a voter that didn't believe in the vaccines, didn't believe in, in mass. And I said, but why don't you trust Dr. Fauci? And she said, quién is Dr. Fauci? Who is Dr. Fauci? Right. And it was because we weren't reaching her. No, it was because there wasn't the Spanish version of Dr. Fauci. And so it goes back to who are who is that trusted messenger? It may not be Joe Biden, but it may be people within stations like Radio Campesina. Well, it's great to know that they are out there doing the work and that you are covering it, my friend. We're trying. Such essential reporting. Paula Ramos, thank you. Please come back all the thank time. Thank you so much. That is our show for this evening. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.